0: Open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 28. Before I read my text, I want to say a few words. I was thinking in regards to the message that I wish I could paint a word picture of of all that transpired between the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Wow. Wow. Uh, to think about that experience and paul speaks about that over in first corinthians chapter 15 of course and uh, lets us know that there were more than 500 that witnessed uh the resurrected savior and although there's a lot about it that we don't know there there is much that god has revealed and, and the scriptures record a number of different appearances that uh before he ascended, that we're not going to take time to look at all of those, but they're uh, quite numerous whenever you search through the Scriptures and pull them all out. But uh, all of them are interesting, but there's one in particular that I want you to focus on today, and that's the one mentioned here in Matthew chapter 28. And I'll read the text in just a little bit, but it actually begins in verse 16. And goes down through verse number 20, and this is where the Lord met with the apostles on the mountain in Galilee. Evidently, Jesus had set a meeting with them at a specified time and a specified place. I say that because in in chapter 26 and verse number 32, he refers to it. And then in verse 7 and verse 10 of chapter 28, you put all those together. And it's obvious that the Lord had planned for this special meeting with them the apostles the 11 and uh, not with the, the crowd in general and i can't help but wonder what was going on uh, through their mind as they awaited that meeting they know where they're supposed to be they know what time i guess he had designated and, and what they must be thinking R- remember all that they've been through now Think about the situation. He's resurrected from the dead. And they're, they're no thinking to themselves, well, what's, what's next? What is he going to do? And, uh, uh, you know, they were still confused about some issues. And we'll see that over in Acts chapter number 1. They thought, is he going to go ahead and set up the kingdom here on earth at this time? They, they didn't have all of that figured out yet they had all of these questions and they're wondering what is he going to say to us what is so important that we have to leave what we're doing and go meet with him separate from everybody else besides it's on a mountain we're going to have to climb up be easier to meet down in the valley or something i don't know it's you know human nature never changes and you hear all kinds of excuses why people don't attend church so I can imagine what's going through their mind and, and they've already seen him after the resurrection so they're wondering what now? What, what does he want us to do? And, uh, but notice that the very first thing that happens is whenever they, when they get there, it, it tells us that verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. When they saw him, they worshipped him. They didn't inquire as to the purpose of the meeting. They had one thing on their mind when they saw the resurrected Savior. Was to worship him. I, in some way, I I, I, I I would have loved to have been there and seen that. I, I just I wonder what they said. I wonder what they did did they raise their hands they clap their hands they fall flat on their face in the ground before him in silence did they sing what what did they do what's going on in their mind and and how long did this go on I feel quite sure they didn't say no we're going to reserve five or 15 minutes or something for we'll worship him before we begin to inquire but this is the first thing and you've always heard me say that worship is the springboard for our service. If, if we don't worship aright, which is in spirit and truth, we'll never do the things God wants us to do. They worshiped him, but, but some doubted. Th- that is really t- evidently confused and terrified a lot of folks, and they get all worried about the situation and The Bible doesn't doesn't tell us what they doubted about. One thing's for certain, they didn't doubt that he was resurrected from the dead. They didn't doubt that. They knew that was true. I think think the doubts must have had to do with what next? Where do we go from here? Is he going to set up the kingdom at this time? Uh, Are all those prophecies going to be fulfilled? But the very fact that Matthew wrote this, tells us something about the truthfulness of the Scriptures. You know, had I been writing an account of a meeting like this with the Lord, and, and so here I put it down in my journal, and I've got it, and I'm going to read it to you. I'd have left out that part. I might have said something like, you know, I worshiped the Lord and told Him how much I trusted Him and what great faith I had in Him, but no. The Holy Spirit said, put it down, and he did. Some doubted, and there's no need for us to worry about what the doubts had to do with because it doesn't really matter. There's no doubt about his resurrection. There's no doubt about their salvation or any such thing as that, and these men had all of these questions uh, that left them with certain doubts, and we all have those kind of doubts. You know, like somebody said one time, heaven sounds too good to be true. Well, thank God for the response of an old preacher who said, no, no, you got it wrong. Heaven sounds too good to not be true. Because your mind couldn't come up with something so great and so wonderful as what heaven is described as. But of all of the things that could be said about this meeting, there's one thing that is very clear and very special and very important. And that's the fact that they were not merely there to fellowship. You know, I don't know exactly where they had been in the meanwhile since their last meeting with him. But it might have been they hadn't seen each other. And so, you know, they, they could have spent some time saying, hey, it's good to see you. I wondered if you was going to be here. Glad you showed up in church today. Uh, Their mind wasn't on anybody else other than Jesus. And I want you to notice as he uh, expresses to them his expectations. This is their job description. And this is what we call the Great Commission. It's divided actually in the three parts and I'll be very brief here but notice the claim that he makes first of all in verse 18. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And then the gives the commission, he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And then there's a commitment attached to that. Verse 20, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, that is the end of the age. Amen. Reviewing what I've been preaching about uh, since I got out of the hospital and and thinking about the, the mission that I think and believe that God has set me on, uh, uh, I've, I've over and over and over repeated that being comes before doing. You know, we pastors sometimes are guilty of berating people and uh, using the, the pulpit as some kind of a Some kind of a torture post for people trying to beat them into submission to do the will of God. But but we're not going to do what God wants us to do till we become or we are becoming what God wants us to be. Because what what we do is the result of who we are. So if you want to know what kind of a person you are, just stop and think about what you do in your life. So our life from the moment of our salvation until the day of our death ought to be a process that's called sanctification where we are growing into the likeness of Christ here on earth. But you know, knowledge only goes so far. We look at the Great Commission and we read it and we've got it and you can quote it and what have you, but at some point in time we have to decide, is this what I'm going to do? Real evidence that we've made a commitment, to our willingness to what? What did I say last week? Put first things first. Last week, we considered the great counsel that God gave. You can call it a, a commission, you can call it a command or whatever, but if you look at it strictly in terms of the context, where you've got this contrast between the Jews and the Gentiles, and they're thinking like the Gentiles that the important thing is the food and the fashion and all of these things of the world. And what am I going to do? How am I going to get those things? And so the Lord gives them this wise counsel. He says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you." you. You put me first. And boy, I'll tell you, no better counsel has ever been given to anybody than that. And so having said that and knowing that we are to put the kingdom of God and His righteousness first. What does that look like? How do we know that that's what we're doing? I mean, anybody can stand up and say, boy, I'll tell you what, I've committed myself to keeping first things first. From now on, that's the way I'm going to live. But what's the evidence of that? There's a lot of different things we could talk about in seeking the kingdom of God first, for example, it shows itself in our purpose for which we live. Why, why are you here? Why are you on earth? We'd all be better off the day we got saved. God just knock us in the head and take us to heaven. be no arthritis, no rheumatism, no heart attacks, no cancer, none of that stuff. We'd just go to heaven. We'd all be better off. But the Lord left us here for a purpose. And the purpose that you live for is a reflection of whether or not you're keeping first things first. Not only that, but the priorities that we establish. The people that we associate with. The placement of our money. The pleasures that we pursue. The purity of our behavior. The other day I started to write an article in regards to seeking first the kingdom of God. And, and uh, I don't think, as absent-minded as I'm getting, I might have sent it out, I don't know. But this is what I said. Because you can read all kinds of definitions and explanations. But to keep first things first, it's the kingdom of God first, most, always, forever, Seeking God's will first means it is the dominant note, the central issue, the main thing, the supreme business, the greatest emphasis, strongest motive, highest calling, and preeminent priority. It means that we set it above all, before all, and seek it ahead of all else. You see, that that determines where we're going to set our affections, where we're going to spend our time, where we'll expend our energy, where we'll give our money, where we'll use our talent. To really put God's kingdom first is going to show itself. But of all of these things that I've mentioned here, I want you to look at it from the vantage point of what Christ has just commanded in this great commission here. And it's clear the Lord makes no bones about it. If you're going to follow me, this is what I am expecting from ye from you. And he says, go ye uh, later later on, probably in f- four, five, six weeks, maybe more, we're going to go through this great commission and take it apart and put it together and look at every little detail because, I can remember preaching in revival meetings and preaching the entire week on those two verses. And just go ye. That, that, you, to go, you've got to leave something. To go, you've got to give up something. So he says, go ye, but notice then he tells them exactly what to do. And uh, amazingly, most people today just uh, sit down and do nothing or they do something else. And obviously, there's something wrong with that. When he says, go ye, and we refuse, there's something seriously wrong with that. And that raises a question. Several, in fact. How can we say that we're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness if we refuse to obey the Great Commission? There'd be a lot of folks that would say, you know, I'm really doing my dead-level best. To, to fulfill the great commission in my life that's what's really important to me and yet they're doing nothing about it you can look at churches and look at their mission statement or their statement of purpose and then look at their actions and there's absolutely nothing going on in that direction what if someone told you, you know, I've, I've decided I'm going to stop attending church. Or, or I'm, I'm going to quit reading my Bible. In fact, I don't think I'm even going to pray anymore unless there's some kind of an emergency. I, I'm just going to quit. And I, in fact, the preacher, he's not going to like this, but I'm not even going to tithe anymore. What if, what if someone, a member of this church, maybe someone that's been a member for a lot of years said those things to you, what would you think? Well, I tell you, if you're honest, you'd have to come to the conclusion that they are not seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's obvious. And yet, that's exactly what's going on today. I hate to admit it, but you know, it's obvious that rather than thinking biblically and taking the gospel out Those that are lost. Instead of doing that, churches have developed a a come and get it attitude. In the first place, they want uh, I'll use the term somebody used, I think it was Jason the other day, he's quoting the song or something about the rock star preacher. They're gonna get a rock star preacher, and so they search out from everywhere trying to find the fellow that's gonna fit in to be the most appealing to the crowd and and so they hire him away from some other church where God never didn't lead him to or from. And they get him there and they initiate all of these programs and build this staff, do all of the publicity work. And after a while, they've got two, three, four, five thousand 5,000 people. Look, I'm not against a large attendance. I I, I I wish our attendance was 10 times what it is. I'm all for that. But what I learned over the years, and I'll never forget it. We had a young couple that I had married. In fact, he's still pastoring up in Kansas. And uh, I married him back in uh, in Missouri, and he and his wife, Gwen, they were going to Bible college. And uh, during the time in Bible college, they decided they were going to one of the big churches there. And they had, at that time, the one of the biggest Baptist churches in the state, High Street Baptist Church. Boy, I mean, it's, wow. So a lot of big churches, they went to one of those. And I'll never forget one day, Gwen telling me, say, we were shocked we got there and we realized, unlike what we see here, because there, if we we started out under a brush arbor, by the way, didn't have a building, just had about five acres of property on a hillside with pin oak all over it. We cleared enough to make some parking in the mud, build a brush arbor, and we met there. And when we started out, if we, had, if we had 30 Sunday morning, we had 30 Sunday night. If we had 30 Sunday night, we had 30 Wednesday night. We had 30 on visitation. We had 30 Saturday morning going out again trying to get people to ride to church, give them rides. And it was basically the same way whenever I left there. And we were running then about 120 in attendance. And uh, everybody was involved. And she said, Brother Stone said, uh, it's not that way there. You know, they've, they've got a staff and the staff goes out and they do this stuff. And maybe a few, but said, we actually have more people out on visitation than they do. And it's sad when we get this, develop this come and get it attitude. And that's why, I don't know where the sign is. I put a sign up years ago. I had Diane to to make it and put it up. And it used to be back here. It said, on your exit, said, you're now entering the mission field. Why is it that we have forgotten that? Do you know the Bible never commands the unsaved people to come to church? Never. It commands the saints to forsake not the assembling of themselves together. But but that's, that's for those that are saved. Our mission is what? To go out beyond the walls of the building. And every day, everywhere we are, basically, we have opportunities to witness for the Lord in some way. Whether it's starting a conversation that leads to talking about Christ, whether it's handing them a track, inviting them to church, whatever it is. We all have those opportunities, and how very seldom we take advantage of them. That's why I say we need to learn how to live intentionally. We just get up in the morning and night, we're like a, we're like a feather in a tornado. We just get blown here and blown there wherever fate might take us. There's no intentionality about the things that we do. When we think about the command to go, where? In all the world. Who? Ye. Go ye into all of the world. Make disciples. And he's talking to his people, those 11, that constituted the first church. But remember this, when we neglect this great commission, it not only displeases God, it opens the door for other sins, and I say other sins because it is a sin for you and I not to be involved in carrying out the great commission. You know, somebody go out here and they're in a state of depression, and they they go out on the town and get drunk as a skunk. And somebody sees them, and first thing you know, here comes somebody running in. Oh, brother, I, you'll never know what I saw. I used to tell me, are you the only one that it, saw it? Bev's watching. She's probably correcting my English right now. And uh, if you don't have two or three witnesses, I don't even want to know about it. But, but, you know, if, oh, yeah, I have plenty of witnesses. He's drunk. He's staggering. He's falling down. You smelled it on his breath. We've got to do something about that. We need to bring that before the church. And it's amazing to me that rather than praying for that person and going to that person and helping to nurse that person back to spiritual health and what have you, the first thing we think of is we need to excommunicate them. And sometimes the same people that that are the quickest to bring up stuff like that have never in their lifetime ever won one person to Jesus Christ. Never. The truth is known, most of them have not even ever tried to win anybody to Christ. So they're thinking, what does he want us to do? And Boy, he gets right to the point here. Now let me tell you, I, I want to be honest. More than likely, this is the hardest thing that, that there is for us Christians to do, is to be witnesses for Christ. To do our best to win others to the Lord. Louis Ensminger was basically known for being a a, a, a brilliant sunday school uh, organizer everybody knows j frank norris right oh the great j frank norris down here in texas and he built all of these big churches and man he uh, he attacked sin what most people don't know is that lewis ensminger was the man that was responsible for those big crowds wasn't J. Frank Norris, it was Lewis Ensminger building up those Sunday schools till the building wouldn't hold anymore. And I mentioned that because Lewis Ensminger mentioned, he said, this is the hardest thing to get Christians to do. And he was speaking from experience. I know it's not easy. It's not quick, it's not easy. I'll never forget whenever I, after I got saved, I started going to everything, every activity they had, every ministry they had. Boy, you go week after week and you knock on doors and, and people will lie to you. Have you ever figured that out? Oh yeah, Hey, you, we'll, we'll be there Sunday. Or we used to go there and we need to get started back. Man, after six months of that and nobody's showing up, I thought, what is the use? I'm wasting my time. And that's when you have to remember that our labor in the Lord's not in vain. Some day, some way it's going to pay off. Amen. It's not quick and it's not easy. So how do we get motivated to do that? Well, John 17 verse 18, he said, "This is the Lord speaking as thou hast sent me, speaking to the Father. This is in the upper room, the high priestly prayer." As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Now, we're going to look at in detail at the Great Commission later on, but I focus here on the connection of our mission with that of Christ. That's what that's talking about. Father, as you sent me into the world, you sent me down there to them. Now think about what he's leaving think about what he's going to have to endure he said in the same way i'm sending them out into the world so there is this connection here between his mission and our mission and we need to focus on that focus on the mission itself the mission of Christ. What did He come to do? For, he said, "Come to seek and to save that which was lost." Right? Yeah. Of all of the needs on earth. This is the the need that the Lord was devoted to. He didn't say, "I came to heal the sick, raise the dead, start hospitals and nonprofit organizations or anything like that." He said, "I came to seek and to save that which was lost." That was His mission. That is our mission. This is our job description. And there's no reason for us to even exist as a church if we're not going to do this. Well, that's the mission, but then what are the means? Well, the only way that we can be successful is to keep Christ as at the center and the heart of everything we do. In other words, the means... Of fulfilling the mission is for us to make him our message i was reading the other day over in colossians and i don't know i found myself doing that a lot lately it seems like i just keep going back to it over and over and over again and i've been doing that ever since i preached that message christ is all let that sink in and I read these verses and I thought, you know, as a pastor, as a Christian, that this would make, make a good mission statement for me. I want you to listen to what Paul says, whereof, verse 25, chapter 1. I am made a minister. He didn't say, I, I chose to be, I decided I want that for my vocation. No, I'm made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the Word of God. That's why God's letting me live right now. It's the only reason that I'm living that I might be able to fulfill the Word of God. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations but now is made manifest to His saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to the working which worketh in me mightily. And I read that and I thought, my Lord, that's exactly what God was telling me to do there in the hospital. I mean,. Get him back as the centerpiece of everything we do, because he's he's the one that matters most. It's not what I preach, how well I preach, or anything else. The bottom line: it is what you think about Christ that matters. He is the means to the mission, and the motive, the motive for it goes back to john chapter number 17 again there as he's praying in the upper room and he said uh, talked about that he had glorified the father that's exactly what we're to do we do what we do you know it's real easy to just give up on something you know it's real easy to for a church to start a new program and well We heard somebody else talk about it. really worked over there. I'm sure it'll double our attendance in a year or two. Uh, We need to initiate that. Works really good for about two or three months. Then all of a sudden, everybody starts dropping out. We need that motivation to keep us going. But listen to me carefully. We need more than just the motivation. We need the might. That is the power. And make no mistake about it. Commitment to our commission is a challenge. And I'm going to have a message or two on that coming later. What we're facing today. I don't want anyone to think that I'm asking you to do something. Or the Lord's asking you to do something that's really easy. Because it's not. Think about what a massive undertaking this is. Eleven imperfect apostles and he says go ye into all of the world did he really expect them to do that well i reckon he did he told them to but here's the thing whenever he told them to do that he is also telling us to do it because those eleven men according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28, he set some first in the church apostles. They constituted the first church. Don't ever listen to this Protestant nonsense about the church starting on the day of Pentecost. The church started during the earthly ministry of Christ. While he was here, he established his church. So when he says go ye, he's not just talking to those 11 men that are present at the meeting. He's talking to his church. Every church is under the obligation to do exactly what he tells us to do. And that's make disciples. Win people to the Lord. Train them. Teach them whatsoever I've taught you. So where do we get the might for something like this? Well... We see it in three ways. Notice verse 18. We see it in His power. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Now notice, that is this, is what the, the therefore is in verse 19. Did you, you Make the connection there. He says, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And then He goes on and, and He says, uh, Therefore, because of that, I have unlimited power. You see, the mission is far greater than anything that we're able to do. It's not within our power. But He has all power to overcome all things, whether it's difficulties, whether it's danger, whether it's disaster, whether it's disease, whether it's demons, whether it's death. Whatever it is, He has the power to overcome that. And He wants us to live in light of that fact. And as you go... And win people to the Lord. Keep that in mind. He not only declared it, he demonstrated it. Aren't you glad? I can get up here and make all kinds of declarations, but demonstrating is a whole different ball game. Boy, our Lord not only declared that he has all power, just look at that empty tomb, and you'll see that he has what he claimed he had. And then notice verse 20, his presence. Lo, yeah, I've heard that joke too, and I'm not going to tell it. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Let me just try to sum that up. You know, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever it is that you're doing, whatever you're going through, you're not alone. There are people that are suffering in hospitals people that have recently lost loved ones, people that have gone through heartbreaking situations. And, and, and the first thing the devil puts in their mind is you might as well just give up on this God stuff. Just quit going to church. Stop reading your Bible. And we, we feel like we're isolated on an island out there all alone with any, without any power to get ourselves out of the situation the fact is, as a Christian, you're never alone. He's with you wherever you are. Notice verse 20 here at the very end. Here, here's the promise. Just that one word, Amen. Now understand that the Holy Spirit, now, because whenever you look at that in your Bible, and if you've got a red letter edition here, you'll notice well, wait a minute, the, the Amen's not colored in red. It's why Jesus didn't say amen. The Holy Spirit told Matthew, say amen. Be it so, even so, be it, let it be true. He wanted Matthew to add that and to, for the sake that we might rest assured that what Jesus just said is true. Regardless of how we feel, regardless of what we think about it, we have God's promise to rely upon and He doesn't lie. He never changes And if we'll keep our focus on His promises, we'll be able to overcome whatever comes against us. So when I look at all of that, I have to conclude that in light of all of that, if we fail, if we fail, there's only one reason, and that's because of our rebellion, our stubbornness, our unwillingness to do what God tells us to do. Because there's no justifiable reason for us to delay. It's wonderful inviting people to come to church. I think we ought to do that more often. And, and uh, that's how I started going to church before I got saved. Somebody invited me to church. I think the first time anybody ever did. And it was at a point in my life where I was desperately needing something. I didn't know what, but I said, yeah, I'll go. Well, I said I'll go right after he said their softball team really needs a player. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me sum it up with this statement. Listen, church, it's time we got off of our seats and into the streets and get out there. He said, I'm sending you out into the highways and the byways. And When I say get into the streets, I'm not talking about necessarily street preaching, although that wouldn't, wouldn't hurt nothing. I'm glad we had Brother Kevin Murdoch here, and I'll be glad whenever we can have him come back through and I'm glad he's doing what he's doing. There's a legend, and I want to emphasize it because I, I almost never in preaching ever make any reference to legends, because people can get confused so easy. You know, for you kiddos, a legend just something that somebody made up in order to make a point. It's a story. Well, this particular legend had to do with uh, when Jesus returned back to glory after the resurrection and on the day of ascension, he goes back to glory. And the angel Gabriel approached him and said, Master, he said, you must have suffered terribly for men down there. Jesus said, I did. And Gabriel said then, he said, do they know all about how much you love them and what you did for them? And Jesus said to Gabriel, oh, oh no not yet right now only a handful of people in Palestine know and so Gabriel was perplexed and he he said to the Lord then what have you done to let everyone know about your love for them and Jesus said I've asked Peter James and John and a few more friends to tell other people about me Those who are told will in turn tell other people about me and my story will spread to the furthest reaches of the globe and ultimately all of mankind will have heard about my life and what I've done. And Gabriel frowned. And he looked skeptical because he knew well the poor stuff that man is made out of. He he knew that. And so he responded by saying yes, yes. What if Peter and James and John grow weary? What if the people who come after them forget? What if way down in the 20th century, people just don't tell others about you? Haven't you made any other plans? And Jesus said, I haven't made any other plans. I'm counting on them. And let me tell you, folks, after all of these centuries, however you want to say it, Jesus is still counting on us. You, you see, God could have written the gospel in, in the sky. Easy. God could have given it to the mockingbirds. And every morning whenever you get up, the mockingbirds sitting out there and they're singing the very words of the scripture. He could have done that. He, he could have sent you a telegram. He, he could have spoken to you in a big booming voice from heaven, but he, he didn't do that. God chose to use His church to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And He's commanded us to do it. And He's counting on us doing that very thing. That's our job. We get so bent out of shape about the rotten condition of the world and who's going to be next in office and all of this stuff. And then we turn around and fail to do the one thing, the only thing that could change everything. Because without the gospel message, without being born again, America's not going to change. It's one person at a time. And and I pray to God that when you leave here that you'll do so, that the Holy Spirit will lay somebody on your heart and that you'll determine in your heart this week to even today, by the grace of God, I'm going to take advantage of that opportunity and I'm going to tell them about Jesus. I'm going to tell them what Jesus did for me. How He changed me. What about it? The Lord said, look, I've got some really good counsel for you. This is what you need to do If you want to have the assurance of your needs, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. Now he turns around, and just before he goes back into heaven, he says, come on, fellas, i got to meet with you. Here's the commission, the great commission. This is your job description. I'm going to be leaving here. Some of them might have thought, oh, No. He's going to leave, and we're going to be, we say, Oh, I'm going to send my spirit. Boy, are we ever going to talk about this later on. There in Acts chapter 1, in verse number 8, he talks about that power that the church was to receive, and that power that the church did receive when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, not to start a church, but to empower a church. And that same Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead, if you're saved, He's living within you. And you'll never, ever have a problem of any kind that He can't handle. His power is greater than any problem that you'll ever have. God help us, as Paul said, to be filled with the Spirit, living under His control and for God's glory. And if you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, I, I pray, I beg you to please listen carefully. Whenever we talk about the mission that Jesus had, of coming into the world, to seek seeking to save that which was lost, and it wasn't like he could just tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, I'm going, I'm going north, would you go along with me? He came to meet your deepest need, and your deepest need as an unsaved person is the forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God. That is, you need to be born again because the spirit within you is dead. Man's made up of a body and a soul and a spirit. That spirit's that part of us that can have a connection with God. But as a sinner, that connection is broken. There is no connection with God. You see God in nature. In, in creation you can read about god in the bible but there's no connection until what until you're born again and at, at, at the new birth is when the spirit of god comes into your heart and quickens you that is makes you alive gives you life and that's what god wants for you today would you would you trust him right now right here this morning you said, preacher i got some questions well that's okay You come on, we'll help you the best we can. But the biggest question is what you're going to do with Christ. Until you settle that, you don't need to worry about any of that other stuff. Tim, come ahead and we're going to stand together and give the invitation. Father, we do praise you this morning, Lord. We praise you for being who you are because without you being who you are, we'd never have what we've got. We'd never know anything about Your saving grace and how we thank You for that. And Lord, I pray for that man, woman, maybe a boy, a girl, someone here today and they've, they've never come to know Christ as their Savior and I pray that even right now they, where they are, even without walking down an aisle, that right where they are from their heart that they would admit to You their awareness of being a sinner and their need of salvation and they would by faith... Trust Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. And then I pray that they'd come and share that with us today. That we can rejoice with them. And God, for those of us that are Christians. And I pray, Lord, especially that you'll help this be a wake-up call to our younger folks. That before they're old and limited by their physical abilities and can't do what they ought to do, God... Help them right now to commit themselves to seeking first your kingdom, your righteousness, and doing everything in their power to fulfill that great commission. For we beg it in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Now as we stand and as we sing, would you come this morning?